I invite you to turn in the Word of God to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 this evening. The world is very subtle in its approach to entangle the soul and the language of Paul to Timothy, I always find very challenging that we should uh, make sure that we're not tangled with the affairs of this life, that we may please him who hath chosen us to be soldiers. But it's easier said than done to make sure you're not entangled with the affairs of this life. What are the affairs of this life? Certainly there are matters that we cannot neglect, that God calls us to address and pay attention to. But obviously in the context dealing with a preacher, there is even more of an exhortation to ensure that he is not so caught up with matters that are purely temporal, but gives himself to the spiritual matters that are pressing. But it is certainly a lesson for us all, that we can become very entangled, more so than we ought to be. But we're in Luke chapter 6 this evening, and we've been going uh, through this. I trust the Lord has been blessing it to you. We will read from verse 20, and read through to the end of verse 26. These are important words, and I trust tonight that the verses that we deal with, the Lord will use to be a help to each of you and to profit us. Luke chapter 6 verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes and his disciples and said, blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Amen. Ending our reading there, trusting again that the Lord will graciously enlighten our minds and hearts to his word. Let us pray. Seek the Lord again, you praying within your own heart for that word that you need that only God can supply. God, we do confess that we can't hear unless it pleases Thee to circumcise our ears, to give us the ability to hear more than just words going through the air, but to hear the message of God. Father, give help in this message, we pray. Give the preacher help. I need it. All the preparation in the world cannot address the needs of the soul. There is much more needed than this 
It is that heavenly influence, that sweet abiding presence of the Spirit of God who takes the Word and applies it to hearts and causes it to live and be effectual in lives. We pray that Thou wilt feed Thy sheep and Thou wilt cause those still in a condition of unbelief to be alarmed, to be brought to repentance and faith. O God, that this might be a word that will address them where they are. Father, encourage us, encourage us all. And again, we just cry to Thee, make Thy presence truly known. Defeat the devil. We are truly aware and very conscious of the fact that he hates the Word of God and he hates any effort to reach souls. O God, give us victory and give us power and help and extend Thy kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been somewhat slowly moving through Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. And in many ways, the verses that we're considering tonight, we have already reflected upon. The focus of our attention tonight is verses 24 through 26. And if you pay careful attention to that, you will know that in many ways it's really elaborating, though only from the negative perspective, on the verses that have proceeded on the Beatitudes that the Lord Jesus has brought to our attention. So from verse 20, about the poor, yours is the kingdom of God, the hung, those that hunger, they will be filled, those that weep, they will laugh, and whenever men are hated, and so on, they can rejoice for, if it's for Christ's sake. But then there's these woes, woe unto you that are rich rather than being poor, like verse 20, for you have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full rather than those that hunger now, verse 21, and woe unto you that, uh, that laugh now, rather than, again, verse 21, those that weep now, and then woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, rather than those that cast you out and your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. So you can see it's all related. And for that reason, when I looked at these verses, I thought, well, I can deal with them and just expand a little more on things that we have already said, and certainly that would be profitable But I want us to do something different. I want to endeavor tonight to approach the text that is before us, verses 24 through 26, by considering the godless worldviews that underpin the reasons for Christ's judgment. Now, I'm going to endeavor to do this by the Lord's help, I trust, and I know that these verses no doubt could be applied to other worldviews that I will not address But at the same time, as we're considering them together, I'm dealing with some of the major worldviews that are out there today and are imbibed by the general populace and actually make their way very often into the thinking of God's people. And so while we're dealing with them in a very general sense, I want you, especially the Lord's people, I want you to think about how is this in my heart and life? Are these worldviews in part taking control of my thoughts? of my actions? Do they control my affections? Am I influenced by them in any way? Because all of us are guilty of forms of syncretism, that is, bringing in other ideologies and thoughts and and marrying them to the truth. And we're all guilty of that. It's very difficult to fight that and, and, and to try and unshackle yourself from every preconceived notion and all that you've adopted from the world. And this is why the Word of God is so important, because without it, We are like ships without rudders, out on the sea without a sail, just hopelessly lost, not knowing what direction we're meant to go. 
And it is by a careful study of the Word of God that we begin to eliminate and eradicate the worldviews that actually are counter to the mind of Christ and cause there to be less fruitfulness in our lives and in our witness. So we're considering then tonight worldviews that damn the soul, worldviews that damn the soul. And you can see why I say damn the soul, because the Lord's language here is very direct. I want you to look at it. Rather than giving the pronouncement of blessing, he says, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. And this is very sobering. If we don't get this right, if we don't think rightly about what Christ says, then we may find ourselves damned at the last. Do think about that. We sit here tonight just like any other occasion. And it's so easy to sit here and think, well, it's just another service, so we sit, we listen to the Word, and you kind of, you're kind of listening. But imagine for a moment that this is life and death. That if you get this wrong, you perish eternally forever. Because that's really where we are. When Christ speaks this language, it is not to shock and awe for the sake of shock and awe. He is, no doubt, certainly startling his hearers, especially when you think that they were, for the most part, devout or religious to some degree. But he seeks to remove from under their feet any false foundation that would lead them astray and cause them to be lost forever. So I trust the Lord will help us. And, and I know that there's so many competing worldviews today. And I think, I trust this will be helpful even as a general overview of some of these things. And you can see them right in the text that permeate our living in this present generation. First of all, we want to consider materialism. Materialism. Because in verse 24, Christ pronounced, Woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Now, when I say materialism, by that I mean the desire for material prosperity, not the philosophical idea that there's matter that exists. The Lord Jesus addresses very strongly the danger of being in a position of wealth and prosperity. And how we relate to that prosperity is crucial. Now, in some branches of Protestantism, you will find a certain idea of asceticism. Asceticism is a, is a view that we should rid ourselves of all kind of even generally accepted ways of life in order to follow a strict adherence to certain rules and regulations that are designed to further our spirituality. John the Baptist is an example of an ascetic life. And when you come to the time of the Reformation, preceding that you had monasticism and other forms of asceticism that were, that were very common throughout Europe and the East, the, the, the Near East at least. 
And, and they would practice these forms of asceticism in order to heighten their spirituality. But when you come to the Protestant Reformation, for the most part, the Reformers did not see this as necessary for the Christian life. That it wasn't necessary that everyone stripped themselves of every material thing in order to heighten their spirituality before God. That God gives gifts and they're to be used and enjoyed. And while there may be cases and arguments for times where we strip ourselves of some of those things and limit our enjoyment of those things, yet it is not a call generally to every person to live like John the Baptist. Turn for a moment to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The end of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the preacher speaks with insight into, again, everyday practices and how to relate to the blessings of life. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 18, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. I think the last verse really what it is driving at is that the sorrows of life that, that generally that, that kind of punctuate the life of a person that, that will be helped and will not remember all those sorrows to the same degree as we enjoy the blessings of life generally as God answers us and hears our prayers even in the midst of of a life punctuated by sorrow. But you can see then that, that there's this toleration, a, a lawfulness to a, a moderate use of the blessings that God provides. However, look a little further up in this chapter and you'll see that there's warnings also included. And if you consider verse 9, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 9, Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. We all depend upon the produce of the earth. The king himself is served by the field. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. And so he's observed certain things that ought to be warnings to us as well, especially there in relation to verse 9 and verse 13. I think those verses are issue warnings against a materialism, a wrong view of the, the material things of life. So you see, verse 10, he, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. So if, if he's trying to find his joy in his silver, he's going to be left discontent. And also this, this, this observation where they have wealth and riches and they are destroyed by them. Riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. They actually do damage to the soul. So there are warnings. And the warning really relates to our, our sense of consolation in 
our wealth and material things? Are we consoled by that which is merely material? Solomon warns, labor not to be rich, Proverbs 23 verse 4. That isn't to be the goal of man's existence. You're not to labor merely for wealth. In fact, the goal of man's labor is the glory of God. And the principle of that labor is simple. It is hard work. And that is the focus of the Word of God. That's what we're instructed in. And when it comes to actually the, 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 the production of our labor, that's up to God. And I say this to those who are in employment. You go out and you do your labor not to get rich. You do it for the glory of God. And if you do it for the glory of God, the product then is up to God. You leave that to Him, but you will find contentment knowing I am serving God, regardless of whether it results in your wealth or not your wealth. We are to work hard. I think it's an important principle. In fact, just as a side note, for those of us who instruct children, we have a tendency always to say to our children, do your best. Do your best. That's all I want. Do your best. And I kind of think that's an unhelpful, at, at times, thing to say to children. I mean, I mean how, how do you measure doing your best? How do you measure that? And while it's not necessarily easy to measure hard work, I think it's easier in our minds to understand what hard work looks like and feels like. I think it's better then to say to our children, work hard, work hard. And they will in their minds understand that, they will grasp that. But to do your best, I'm not so sure we even, any of us have ever done our best. I mean, what would that even look like if you or I were to do our best at any particular thing? The purpose of labor is the glory of God. And we can work hard, and we ought to work hard, but the product, the output, what results in our labor is up to God. And while man has a right to own property, which is clearly deduced from the sixth commandment, thou shalt not steal, yet we must realize that we are never the ultimate owners of anything. Have you ever meditated upon Psalm 24 verse 1? The earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's. It all belongs to Him. Every single part. It's not like He owns all the bits that don't have title deeds to to men. He owns it all. And we are middle management. Where He gives to us, allots to us certain things to take care of. We're just stewards of what He has granted for a season of time. We're not to think, this belongs to me. It belongs to God. All of it. Is that not really the instruction of Revelation 4.11? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Everything created for God. And so when we consider our lot and our purpose in life, we are to simply serve God through everything that we do. Through all that we find ourselves doing, we are to serve God. For as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. And so when we read in Luke chapter 6, we're being warned against 
a wrong view of the material things of life. Woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Those of you who are materialistic, who find your identity, your sense of worth, your sense of salvation, that when people ask about what you have done in life, how you have succeeded, it all comes down to dollars and things that you own. That's your sole consolation. You have nothing else. But the right thinking, those, those who understand properly what way we are to live. Yes, we labor, and we may be wealthy, or we may be not. But we, 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 we calibrate it all by understanding that we're laboring for God. It all belongs to Him. And then we find a sense of joy and purpose, not so much in the result of our labors as in the actual work itself. Those of us who do God's work, those, anyone here involved in ministry, your Sunday school teacher, outreach of any sort, just even seeking to live a godly Christian life and be a witness to those around you at work, you, you know the importance of this. Because when you go through times that it seems you're very unfruitful, what do you come back and encourage yourself with? Well done, thy good and faithful servant. I can't save a soul. The spiritual matters, the product of our labor belongs to God. But what a sad condition are those in who find all the consolation in their wealth. That's materialism. And it is all around you. All the advertisements, everything that you see, the reason you need to upgrade from an iPhone 10R to iPhone 11 Pro, and you know there's hardly any difference between. Them. But you, 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 but they're all, they're just this constant, constant appeal to human nature, to the depravity of the nature that leans itself to find consolation in what we have, what we possess. It makes us identify with a certain subgroup of the community, makes us acceptable to certain people. And if we find consolation there, if, if that is our consolation, we are teetering on the brink of eternity, about to fall into God's hell, not realizing that the consolation for sinners is Christ. Christ alone. The second worldview is that of naturalism. Naturalism. We're told in verse 25, Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that are full, that are satisfied, for ye shall hunger. Naturalism is a worldview that interprets life through a lens which asserts that everything arises from natural properties and causes and supernatural or spiritual explanations are excluded or discounted. This is the basic foundation of the atheist, of whom we read this morning. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. For such all that exists is the material universe. There's no such thing as a soul. There's no genuine spirituality. Everything can be explained on the basis of natural law. Man himself is the product of chance, 
and infinite, it appears, biological changes over a very long period of time. He has no objective values or morals. These are governed by individual preferences and have been shaped by that which helps humans to thrive in a social context. This is naturalism. Of course, this worldview is predicated on some form of the theory of evolution and therefore argues without evidence that nothing created everything. Naturalism. One philosopher a good number of years ago actually argued that naturalism is self-defeating. It doesn't even stand its own test. If I could summarize his argument, it is that since evolution is more focused on survival rather than true beliefs, it is improbable that human cognitive faculties are reliable. Thus, the naturalist should doubt his own beliefs. About they exist everywhere. It is the dominant worldview of the day. The naturalistic worldview. And when the fool says in his heart there is no God, he must find an alternative worldview. Naturalism fits. Allows him to leave God out of the equation. And lends himself to, and this is the point, it lends himself to have a sense of self-sufficiency. He has to be able to argue that he is, there is self-sufficiency in humanity, in the world, as it stands without God. And so, man can proudly profess that he is full, that he has all that he needs. That's why we exist. The evolutionary processes have allowed us to thrive. We have, therefore, everything that we need. So he boasts. Christ warns against it. Woe unto you that are full. Woe unto you that think you have everything that you need. Woe unto you that think that you can live life without God, without Christ. Woe unto you. If you live in such a way, the day is coming when you will hunger. You will hunger eternally. The Lord taught His people, Israel, that they were utterly dependent upon Him. The well-known words of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where we read, And He humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know, that He might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now, sometimes that text is taken to mean that we live our lives and we need the Word of God to come to us spiritually to sustain us. But that's not really what the text is saying. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 is laying down the simple foundation that man can't exist without God. And should man have no bread, if he is nothing... He can be sustained by the mere will of God. That God can uphold and sustain man in his existence, not by bread, but just by the exercise of his own divine will. Just like he did for their shoes. It didn't wear out 40 years. What was that but just the will of God revealed? Sustaining man. 
John Calvin writes, We are simply and solely taught that although bread and wine fail, our bodies may be sustained and invigorated by God's will alone. And this is supported by other scriptures. Job 12 verse 10, In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. It's in God's hand. Isaiah 42 verse 5, Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens, and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth, and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. He gives breath. He sustains their life. And as Paul preached in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, in him, that is in God, we live and move and have our being. Man is not self-sufficient. He may boast, that he is. He may claim that he is, but he is not. Woe unto you that are full. Woe unto you that think yourselves sufficient without God. Woe unto you. Ye shall hunger. You'll hunger everlastingly. What a thought that is. The first time some men will ever come face to face with eternal realities is when they drop into hell. These are serious matters. Can you see how the Lord is warning us? Woe unto you that are rich. Woe unto you that are full. Are these things in our lives? Are they in your life? In my life? we have a dependency upon material things? Do, do, we, do we pray, give us this day our daily bread, or have we got to a point in life where we're in a measure comfortable? We no longer have to pray that way, we think. Dangerous place to be. Or to think ourselves self-sufficient. We don't really need God and His help. We enter into days and carry on through our duties without even so much as a prayer for divine help. An expression of our own atheism in our hearts that we don't actually truly, deeply believe I need God's help today. So we just carry on through all the matters that we have to deal with from one day to the next. And the Lord would say, woe unto you, that are full. Woe unto you. You're satisfied with everything. Really, you don't even want to die to go and go to heaven because you have it so good here. You have no longing for spiritual things, no longing for eternal matters, no appreciation for Christ because you have it made. That's America today. The world looks on with envy, with no clue about all the dangers of the prosperity that this land has enjoyed. But we ought not to fall into that trap. The Lord, the Lord graciously warns us. Oh, how gracious it is to be warned. How gracious it is to hear the truth. For the Lord to get us 
get a hold of us and say, just stop for a minute. Just stop and analyze how you're thinking. Think about the, what's dominating your worldview. What, what is, what is, how do you process life? What are you trusting in? What are you resting in? What's your joy and consolation in? Is it Christ? Would you be content if you had nothing but Christ? Oh, that's a challenge. Nothing but Christ. Yet content. Third worldview you may see here is that of hedonism. Hedonism. Again, verse 25. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you that laugh now. Is the Lord against laughing? (laughs) Is he opposed to laughter? Interestingly, we don't, from my memory, we do not ever read of the Lord Jesus laughing in his earthly ministry. We read of him weeping, but not laughing. Psalm 2 tells us that he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. There is. There is a holy laughter as expressed by the Lord. A joy that he possesses and he would have us to possess as well. He's not against it. But when we think of hedonism, the goal of the hedonist is to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. For the hedonist to pleasure, that is in the sense of satisfying his desires, is the highest good and proper aim of human life. That's what that's the goal of life. Pleasure. Avoiding pain. Anything that's uncomfortable, anything we don't enjoy, quickly move away from it and find something more pleasurable. The governing rule of his life. There are many like that today. Think of the decisions that people make. Think of how people respond today to certain events. And, you know, they have one bad day at work, they're ready to throw in the towel and go look for another job. I mean, in essence, that's kind of a hedonistic reaction, isn't it? I didn't, I'm not enjoying work anymore. I'm just going to move somewhere else. And again, I'm not saying there isn't a time and a place from moving from one place of employment to another. I'm just saying, what, what, what's, on what basis do people make such a move? What's, what's governing the thoughts? Is it, is it a, a Christian, biblical perspective? Or is it hedonism? I don't like it anymore. I'm going to move on you allow that to govern even simple things like your employment, you will find it governing other aspects of your life as well. The problem, of course, for the hedonist is that he lives in a fallen world, the fool that he is. He doesn't realize this. He doesn't understand it. And so he is not guaranteed to succeed in his pursuit of pleasure. In fact, what so often will be the case is that as he pursues it, and the more he makes pleasure his goal, the more he fails to satisfy the objective, and therefore the more misery he brings into his life. 
that he's, he, he just can't succeed successfully to continue in a, a place of pleasure. The curse upon the world will guarantee it. But he will continue to press on for it. And so his ethical framework will be that he can, takes into consideration no one but himself. It's all about him. He gets married for his own pleasure. He leaves the marriage when it no longer fulfills his pleasure as he would desire. He suppresses any sense of loyalty to his spouse. He would tell himself that it's better for his children. He'll argue it all because it was really the fundamental governing rule of his life is my pleasure. It's about me. Won't suffer any hardship. Won't continue on. Of course, this is what the Lord warns about. Such is the kind of the, the sense of man's obligation to obey this rule that when he speaks of the parable of the sower, again, it's when the, the cares of this life and, and hardships come that then the seed is just cast aside. It doesn't bear fruit long term. People give up following the Lord when it gets tough. It is simple for the hedonist. If it feels good, do it. As I say, it's not that the Lord calls man to a life of misery. The Lord has made man to enjoy life. Certainly that is generally the way created to enjoy life. Hope and happiness are not experiences that are removed from the Christian experience. But the Christian, he he seeks for, for joy in a different way. It's not pleasure at all costs. He realizes that his greatest joy is knowing and doing the will of God. The greatest joy of the Christian is knowing and doing the will of God. Now, let me stop there. If any other perspective rules in your thinking, you have been influenced by a worldview that is not biblical. If that is not the governing understanding of your mind, and I'm not saying that we all perfectly follow through on it every day, but if there isn't at least a grasp of the fact that my greatest joy is knowing and doing the will of God, then we can't even begin to fulfill the purpose for which we exist. You say that to the world, they'll think you're mad. Knowing and doing the will of God? What kind of oppressive condition is that to be in? But it's not oppression. It's liberty. It is freedom. It is the hedonist who is bound and fettered. He can't loose himself from this compelling drive that I, I must, I must be in a constant state of pleasure. It's a sore taskmaster to be under. How many have lost friends and family and everything meaningful in their lives because really the dominating rule of their life was I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to find pleasure for me no matter what. The Christian 
He understands that he was made to look up and ask God, what will thou have me to do? The hedonist looks in and asks, what do I want to do? It's all opposite to our purpose. The Christian embraces what God gives with gratitude. He experiences joy and contentment even through the hard days. When the hedonist can't find any pleasure or way of processing the hardship, the Christian calmly goes through the storms in the knowledge that he is enjoying what exactly his sovereign God has planned for his life. As hard as it is, it is working together for his good in a way that is beyond comprehension. Woe unto you that laugh now. Woe unto you that it is your joy, your carnal joys that rule and dominate your life. Woe unto you. Woe unto you that elevate your own personal contentment over everything else. Ye shall mourn and weep. You don't have to go too far to see it. Being perhaps not exposed to all the sorrows of the community, we might not always be aware of what is going on, but any social worker, any person who's out in society, anyone who works in detention centers and prisons and is in the courts and sees what people are doing and what they're suffering and where their sin has led them. (laughs) They know all too well that they will mourn and weep eventually. Live for the high. Take the drugs. Consume the drink. Do everything just to satisfy the carnal desires to get the high. Ye shall mourn and weep. Proverbs 4.19 The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. That's the hedonist. He walks in darkness. He doesn't know what he stumbles at. He has no clue how to navigate life. He's in a fallen world and he's trying to live it as if he's in a perfect world that is all, this whole, the the universe's entire purpose is to bring him pleasure. That's not the world he lives in. So the way of the transgressors is hard. Proverbs 13, 15, it's hard. And young people, get it into your mind. If, If there's any hedonistic tendencies in your life, where, you're, where you're, 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 you're dealing with things and making decisions on the basis of what will bring you most joy, be alarmed. I'm not saying make decisions that will make you most miserable. I'm saying make decisions on the basis of the Word of God. What would the Lord have me to do? 
What is most scriptural? What do I understand to be the best reflection of Christian testimony, what the Lord would have me as his child to do in this scenario? You talk to wise counselors, speak to those that care, those that know, those that perhaps have been in a similar position. Get the counsel. Don't just go headlong and know the dominating role of my life is my pleasure. It's all that matters to me. See where that leads. Oh, that you could see the future. Oh, that you could get an insight into the life that is only concerned about his own happiness. Woe unto you that laugh now. Finally, the fourth worldview is that of humanism. Humanism. Verse 26, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. By humanism, I do not mean the Renaissance humanism that some of you may be familiar with. When I use the term humanism, I speak of the prevalent modern use of the term that emphasizes the value and agency of human beings individually and collectively. Humanism, the elevation of man, that man is, is, is his own God, essentially. It's not necessarily opposed to spirituality like naturalism, but it attaches prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. It's all about man. It's all about man. The Humanist Manifesto that was written in 1933 is quite enlightening. It was signed by men like John Dewey. You that educate will be well familiar with that name. The infamous John Dewey shaped the public school system. He signed it, among 30-odd others. And the opening paragraph of that document reads, quote, The time has come for widespread recognition of the radical changes in religious beliefs throughout the modern world. The time has passed for mere revision of traditional attitudes. Science and economic change have disrupted the old beliefs. Religions the world over, are under the necessity of coming to terms with new conditions created by a vastly increased knowledge and experience. None it goes. Proudly asserting that man has moved on from religion. We don't need it in its old form, at least. And essentially then saying that, that man... Each man needs to realize that the voice of man supersedes the voice of God. Cast aside those old traditions, set aside the old ways that came about as thus saith the Lord, and now elevate and champion thus saith man. What man has to say is most important, and of course this is somewhat the perspective of the false prophet. The false prophet has the belief that his words are what man needs to hear, not God's words. Men are not going to speak well of the one who speaks God's words, so speak man's words. And we live in a day where basically any view is tolerated except that which expresses the mind of God. Anything goes. 
but the Christian worldview. But this is not new. Far from you. Man has this bent to elevate the opinions of men. Turn for a minute to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're nearly finished here. And I want you to note this, and everyone turn to John 5, because there, this is very, very helpful in the context of how men elevate the opinions of other men. How humanism dominates rather than a Christian worldview, true theism as expressed from the Word of God. John 5 verse, we'll read from verse 39. John 5 verse 39. Here the Lord Jesus speaks, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life, I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Now just stop there. The Lord is addressing those of his day who were greatly upset at what he was doing, particularly the healing of the Sabbath on the Sabbath day that we have accounted for us at the beginning of chapter 5. And he deals with certain matters, some weight, certain very weighty theological matters in terms of the, the equality of the Son with the Father and so on. But when he, he comes near to the end of it, he, he points them back to the Scriptures. These are men who thought they knew the Scriptures, but they did not. And he says, you'll not come to me that you might have life, verse 40. I receive not honor from men. I'm not here just to be, to, to, to be praised by men. I'm here to do the will of God. But you, you don't have the love of God in you. In other words, the love of God was dominating the moves of Christ and his, his, his desire to satisfy the Father's will already expressed earlier in the chapter. But they don't have the love of God. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, note this, another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. You'll take the thoughts and ideology of men before the thoughts of God. And then verse 44, oh, look at this. It's, it's constructed as a question, but it's rhetorical. He's not looking for an answer. He's driving home the point, how can ye believe? Let me rephrase this, if you would allow me. You can't believe who receive honor one of another. You can't. When you elevate the praise of men, you can't be saved. When the views of men, the beliefs of men relating to you, and your desire for ambition among men, when that is important to you, you can't be saved. 
Now, there could not be more alarming language. Jesus Christ is saying right here, it is impossible to be a Christian if you elevate the praise of men. You can't be saved. You can't, you're not on the way to heaven if you don't realize that the view of God, the opinion of God, the mind of God supersedes all the thoughts of men. If you have a problem with that, you're not going to heaven. The Lord makes it so clear, and I, I find it very instructive. How can ye believe which receive? You can't. That's, that's the essence of it. He's not asking it like there's a possibility. He's asking the question to drive home the point that it's impossible. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that come, cometh from God only? How is it? It's not possible. You have to cast aside the opinions of men. You have to throw away the thoughts of your peers and those that you live and work amongst. They don't matter. Stop elevating humanity to the point that you're willing to damn your soul in order to be accepted before men. And that's what the Lord is driving at in Luke chapter 6. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, when people are speaking well of you, why is it? Because you've elevated their opinions. You have lived your life in order that they would speak well of you. And this is what men said about the false prophets too. Because the false prophets spoke to satisfy the carnal desires of lost men. The elevation of humanity to the point that we subvert the place of God in our lives. Woe. Woe unto you. These are worldviews that will damn the soul. They're not suggestions. They're not nice little insights. This is a perspective from the Lord Jesus Christ that ought to grip every last one of us to the point that we begin to question in what way do any of these thoughts rule in my life and my heart? Am I particularly weak in relation to materialism? Am I? Is that a weakness of my life? They have a trust there that is unhealthy. Trust there's no one here who elevates any form of naturalism, who de denies the very existence of God. Maybe there's some form of hedonism that rules. It's about my pleasure. Maybe that's why you're not saved. You, you don't want Christ to have insight into your life. You want to live according to your own rules. You're afraid. You're afraid that the Lord Jesus will ruin your life. That it won't be as joyful as happy, as successful, as prosperous if you have Christ. That's what you think. It's about you. And all I can say unto you is woe unto you. With your hedonistic tendencies. Ye shall mourn and weep. Oh, that we understood the gravity of being lost forever.
Christ. Christ, my friend, is the only answer. That, again, goes back to what we've been trying to emphasize in terms of the Beatitudes already considered. It all points us to Christ. He is our consolation. He is our joy. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one that we want to receive the well done from. Take the world, but give me Jesus. That should be the statement of every heart. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. here tonight and you're not yet saved? Is there anyone here tonight not yet trusting in Christ? What is the reason? Is it some false ideology? Is it some coliate of the world that you've taken on board and you believe that this will lead to your greater joy? That Christ will only ruin everything for you. May you hear the alarm of the Lord Jesus. Woe unto you. Woe unto you. Do you have any fear of God? Any fear of death? Do you ever think about eternity? Do you ever wonder whether death will come suddenly to you? Your life can change in a fraction of a second. Everything that you planned can all fall apart. And there you are without Christ, without hope, clutching at straws, thrust out into the presence of the wrath of God. If you need our help, I'm only too glad to talk with you and open the Scriptures and counsel you from the Word of God. Father, we pray that Thou wilt shape our minds and our hearts by Thy Word alone. God, root out of me anything that is contrary to the Scriptures. What a sad position this church would be in if they had a preacher who was bringing to them the vain philosophies of the world. God, hedge us in to thy truth. Lord, we pray that thou wilt help each mind and heart that is here this evening to be subject to the mind and will of God, to be hearers of the word and doers of the word, that thou wilt prosper the word in our lives, that we would know what it is to triumph even through the tragedies of life. God, help and encourage us. Be with all thy people this night. Encourage those that will Enjoy fellowship and conversation for a time before they go home. And take each one to their homes in safety. Grant, O God, that thou wilt be with those that go downstairs. Bless the food that has been provided for them. And we pray that this week will be a week of enjoying the presence of God and living for the glory of Christ. Here then, these are prayers. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.